Tonight, we're going to finish up our series on the Gospel of Mark. We've, it's been titled, The Immediate Jesus. So you can turn to Mark 16 is where we're going to be for the most part this evening. And I, I hope you've enjoyed this series. Uh, uh, but, but even more than enjoyed it, I hope that you have profited from this series of teaching on the immediate Jesus in your spirit. And, and I just want to say, if you have not enjoyed it, I'm glad that you at least sat still and let me teach it because I have profited from it myself. So anyway, let's just jump right in. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is what, what it says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. That, that is Jesus' dead body. And very early on the first day of the week, and that, that would be what? Sunday, right. The, the first day of the week as reckoned by the Jews. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is, has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, when we closed out our study two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus on the cross, and, and we discussed in some amount of graphic detail, although I hope not in lurid detail, but we talked about a lot of the details of the realities and the horror of the crucifixion. And I think that is important for us in, the, in this last of this series of teachings on the Gospel of Mark, that we remember the nightmare of the event. You know, the, there, there is a terrible, terrible shock that goes through any of us uh, at, at any death of, a, of any loved one. Uh, how many of you have, have experienced at close range the sudden and deep hurt of the death of a very close loved one? Anybody here, you've experienced that? Yeah, many of us, if not all of us. But, but as terrible as that is, no one here has gone through what the people around Jesus went through during that Passover week. They, because they, 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 yes, they lost a close friend, they, but they not only lost a close friend through a sudden and, and untimely death, but they have literally seen their hopes of messianic glory entombed. You know, they had pinned their hopes for the return of a new kingdom of David on Jesus. They, they had, so to speak, had seen the star of David rising in the eastern sky, and they were looking for an imminent excuse me, establishment of a physical kingdom. And now that's gone. That's gone. Furthermore, you add to that, this is somebody that they thought could not be killed. He was, he was bigger than life. I mean, he... He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He made the blind to see. He made the deaf to, to hear. He made the lame to walk. And he himself had raised the dead. I mean, what can kill a man who can raise the dead? So th they experienced not only the death of their hopes but, and, and, and all of these dreams and, and seeing all of this happen, but they also witnessed the horror of their crucifixion. I'm just trying to set the scene for the trauma that they have been through. Remember, the Romans we talked about, were experts in making, turning death into horror. That's what they wanted. They wanted uh, potential criminals and potential rebels in their extended empire 
not, not only to fear death, but they wanted them to see that death by Roman crucifixion was a living nightmare. They wanted the horror of that emblazoned on their minds, and they wanted death to be a, a shocking trauma of visible hell as they created this blurred image into which they immersed the spectators. It, it was just an agony of pain and horror. And then you add to all of that the fact that these people are, are drenched in their own self-disillusionment. Have you ever thought about that? The, these are people who thought that they'd be brave and they weren't. These are people who thought that they'd have faith and they didn't. They thought all kinds of things about themselves and they failed over and over and over again. I think some of that is because they thought, well, Jesus, if he can raise the dead, I don't, we, they can't kill him. So we can, we can stand by him and say, Lord, even if, you, if they kill you, I'll, I'll go with you. But, but they, they thought all these things about themselves and they failed over and over again. You saw, we, we learned about Mark, the writer of the gospel, who has not only fled, but he, but, but, but he, he, he uh, uh, fled exposed in the nakedness of his cowardice. And then there's Peter who has denied Christ with a curse in his mouth. And nobody really did anything in the whole, the whole process there. They, they're, so they're drenched in that sickening kind of despair that sets in on victims. They feel exploited. They feel ravaged. They're just demolished by this whole event. Now, when we come from that then into the first verse of Mark 16, it sort of lends a very fascinating background of this verse of Scripture. And it may not jump out at you at first, but I want you to think on it. Let's just read it together. Verse 1. When the Sabbath day was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, now, notice how that verse starts off. When the Sabbath was passed... Now, then the, the Sabbath, if you remember, is from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. Uh, and so they're wait, they have to wait for the Sabbath to be over to go and deal with the body of Jesus. But you can't go out to a cemetery at night. Uh, and so the first day dawns after the Sabbath, after Jesus has been killed, and that's Sunday morning. And we, we know that, that Jesus died on Friday and he was buried hurriedly because the Sabbath was upon them. We talked about that last week. Therefore, he was entombed before sundown on Friday. And that being the case, then, these people have experienced in their lifetime that the worst Sabbath they've ever had in their life. You imagine sitting in their, their homes, observing the Sabbath on, uh, right on the heels of these things. I mean... Jesus is just barely off the cross and the Sabbath begins. And so uh, they leave Golgotha, Golgotha, they leave Calvary on Friday night just completely shattered. And they, they walk away in the death and the horror of the experience. They're in trauma and they're thinking, we ought to do something for Jesus. They, they need some physical way to express their love, but there's nothing to do because it's the Sabbath now. So Saturday dawns and, you know, it was a new day so they could, they could go on Saturday except that's the Sabbath. Isn't it ironic? You know, religion killed Jesus and then religion denies him even a clean body and a decent burial. Because of the hurry to get into their houses before the night falls on the Sabbath, they, they must take his battered, bruised, 
bloodied and outraged corpse. They wrap it in cloth that they know is going to stick to the wounds and they're going to have to pull that off later to clean him off and it's just going to be a terrible mess. And they put him in a borrowed tomb. I mean, this very wealthy lawyer named Joseph of Arimathea, he's really the only one that showed any, any measure of courage at all. He's gone in and he's asked for the body of Christ and but it's all done in a hurry because the Sabbath is about to come. The sun is setting and they take the body, they wrap it in cloth, they place it in this borrowed tomb near Golgotha and then they roll the stone over the entrance. And then what do they do? They wait some 30 or 31 hours before they, they can even go and attend to the body. It's just that bitter irony that it is religion that got Jesus crucified and religion caused his poor horrified body to lie in that grave. No, nobody even had a chance to clean him up. That, that to me is one of the worst things about the verse. And what must they have been thinking? Sitting there that all day long thinking, we can't even go take care of his body. We can't even, even after his death, we can't go and show how much we loved him. Let's keep reading in verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, the tomb that's being referred to is a carved grave. Uh, you have to remember just kind of the, the, the setting there. You have to remember that land is at a premium in a small country, right? And Israel is a tiny little country. So, I mean, when you, when you have a very small country, you make every tiny little burt, uh, bit of dirt uh, count with a crop. You're using it for something. So not only that, but you don't bury people in the ground where you have to dynamite the ground. And the ground in Israel is very rocky, very stony. And so, so what they would do is they would have these rock facings and they would carve into them uh, and, and carve out these graves. Now, here's the thing, because that is, this is long, hard and expensive work. The people who can afford these kind of tombs are wealthy people. So this lawyer, Joseph of Arimathea, has prepared this for himself because he wants it done before he dies, right? Why is that? Because what, what's the Jewish law about burial of the dead? Anybody know? If somebody dies, you have to bury them before dark. And so it's too late to carve out a tomb from the stone before dark if you pass away on any given day and so this lawyer wants this thing finished so it so that it'll be ready for him when he dies and and that, that may seem a little bit odd to us but it's really not because don't we buy cemetery plots in advance and so it's really the similar thing it's just wanting to be prepared for when that day comes so joseph has this carved tomb waiting for him and when Jesus dies, Joseph takes his body and puts it in the place that he's prepared for himself. Now, we don't know if he planned on leaving him there or if they were going to find another burial place. Uh, uh, of course, these tombs were generally made for more than one person. Uh, and that's why they had the stone that would roll and, and they would seal it up because then when another family, they were usually designed for the family. So that when another family member passed away, they would, they would op roll the stone out, open it up. They would put the body in there. And so you, you, you had, uh, that's the way it worked. And so we don't know if Jesus, he was planning on leaving Jesus there or if he was going to find another place later, but they had to have some place to put him right away. And so, so this is what he does. He puts them in the place that he's prepared for himself. And if you look at verse three, there, there's, a, there's a passage of scripture here that is difficult to understand unless you have seen this kind of grave. But look at verse three. And they were saying to one another, 
the, the women who were on the way out to anoint the body of Jesus, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, there, there are a lot of people from our culture who simply cannot get this picture because we see stones like baseballs or golf balls, you know, that sort of thing. We, we see them as round, like boulders, that sort of thing. Uh, but and therefore, we, we sometimes have a hard time getting the picture of this massive stone that had been rolled in front of the door. I have a picture. We're going to throw it all on the screen. It'll also be on the live stream. You can see the tomb there at least a little bit. That's, that is a tomb. That is not the tomb of Jesus, but that's a tomb. And you can see there how uh, the, the, the tomb has been carved out and it looks like it's a little cave that goes there into the front. And, and then if you look at that, it, it, there's a little track in front of the door. It sort of looks like a step. You see that on the picture? And, and on, the, on, the, uh, on the, 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 that step or that track has a little bit of a raised edge on the front and the back side of it. So there's a groove there and, and, and the stone sits on top of that. And the stone as you, that you can see there is a flat stone, like a millstone almost. It's, it's, it's this great massive stone disc. And uh, after living in Reno, I'll tell you, it's like a giant stone poker chip. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like, okay? And so uh, it, it's about, uh, about a foot thick and probably about six feet in di diameter. And the, the stones used in front of tombs during these days, they could weigh up to two tons, but they're you know, anywhere from one-third of a ton up to two tons. They generally could be moved by two men. One, one man would not be able to roll it, but, but usually you could get it moved by two men but it was obviously a very difficult task. Now, when we get that picture in our minds, now you, it, you make, it makes sense. These ladies that are approaching the tomb early in the morning on Sunday morning, they, and these ladies, as they are approaching the tomb, they're questioning themselves about how they're going to get this massive stone away from the entrance of the tomb. Because here they are, they're just three, three ladies. They don't have the strength to do this. How are we going to do this? How are we going to get in there? We need to take care of his body, but... But I can't help but wonder where the disciples are. They might have tried to recruit them, but maybe they were still in shock and maybe they're still afraid of what would happen if they show up at the grave. We don't know any of those things, but there they are on their way. And they're on the way and they can't figure out how they're going to get this stone moved. Then verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And the next part almost seems a little odd to us. It was very large. Just seems like an odd statement, but I think what Mark means by that in his abbreviated style, remember he's very straightforward, very abbreviated, that, uh, is that he's, he's just trying to communicate that they're surprised that that, large, that very large stone has already been moved. He assumes that we know, uh, we know that because he assumes that the reader understands something about the tombs and stones. So he makes the point that they're surprised that the stone has already been rolled away. Because as far as they know, the only people at the, at the, at the uh, tomb, at the gravesite, are the Roman soldiers. Well, they're not moving it, so they're a little shocked. Then look what happened next, verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Well, yeah, <laughs> you would be. In verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
Now, I, I haven't been to Israel. I hope to go some, one day, but um, it, those that, if you go over there, there's a tomb there. Uh, it's the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. And uh, many people believe, and tradition tells us, that that is the actual burial place of Jesus. I don't know if it is or not for sure, because God didn't put a sign on it. Um, however, when you visit that tomb, as you step across the raised threshold in, to go into that tomb, there's this little anteroom to the right. And then there's another little archway that, that leads off to the left, and that's where the bodies would, would be uh, placed off to the left. So the, the, the anteroom was sort of like a little chamber where, where people could sit there and they could weep and mourn together and and uh, they could go in there and, and mourn their lost loved one. They could, uh, right after the funeral or, you know, when they're putting somebody else in, in a tomb, that sort of thing. And, and, but, but as you enter into that particular tomb, if you go into that anteroom off to the right, you would, you would turn around then and there's a place there to sit down. And when you were sitting down in that little mourner's chamber, you would be looking directly down uh, facing two stone beds with an aisle down the middle. It's, it's really quite remarkable because the Bible is quite, quite clear that the angel is sitting on which side? The right side. So he's, so he's sitting in this anteroom staring at the empty bed across from him. And the women come into this mourner's chamber and they look and there sits this angel robed in a long white robe and, and, he, and he says to them, you're looking for Jesus. He doesn't ask them. He tells them, he says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. See, see that angel had been sitting there, but staring at that. That's what kind of the picture it gets to me that this angel has been sitting there staring at that empty bed. And, and I, I don't know how angels think, but he's, he's been somehow or another thinking about this. He's been sitting there. He's, he was there before they arrived. And, and to me, and you can take this for what it's worth. I just think that maybe it was more astonishing to the angel than it was to the women. Why, why, why is it so shocking to this angel? Well, you see, think about this. The only experience that the women have had with Jesus was with him as a living man. But that 33 years of Jesus's life as a human being, to the angels, that seems like a twinkling of an eye. Because, I mean, they, they just, they barely even recognize him as a human being because they recognize him as the pre-existent, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity that, ha has, ha that has been God and ha was with God and was in God and was God for always and always, for all eternity. That's all that they had ever seen. You see this? So this angel, to me, is staring in shock at the slab of stone where the dead body of God was lying. God lay here, the, the word of God. John 1 and 14, verse 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here's the thing. If the Word became flesh and the flesh died, then the Word died. And the angel is sitting there saying, I can't get my head around this. These, these women come in and, he's, and he says to them, look, behold, the place where they lay him. 
I think he's as amazed at everything that has been accomplished as they are. Maybe even more so because they understand the gravity of it all in a greater way. We, we, we see this whole crucifixion, death, and resurrection event from the bottom side up. You know, we're, we're looking up from earth. But if you, if you uh, must understand how, you, you have to try to understand how this whole thing must have looked to the beings in the supernatural dimension. Imagine how this whole series of events looked to the angels. Jesus said, you remember, he said, uh, don't you understand? I could basically, he said, I could snap my fingers right now and there'd be legions of angels to come and deliver me. Why was he able to say that? Well, he could see them. He knew they were there. The angels were all standing around the cross weeping and the demons were all dancing at the foot of the cross. However, we as human beings are so imprisoned by the physical realm that all the people could see was Jesus and the soldiers and his suffering and his pain and his crying out. That's all they could see. But there's this whole other dimension that was swirling around. And I, I just think maybe the angels were just about as much in shock as anybody else. Just to maybe even maybe shock is not even right. Or maybe in awe is a better word. Then in verse seven. But go, he's still speaking, the angel speaking to the women. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now I want to point out just two little things to this about that verse. One is, notice that the angel separates out Peter from the other disciples. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And it's as if, uh, he might be saying, go tell the disciples and, and Peter in particular. Uh, or, or go tell his disciples, and, but especially tell Peter. The, the, and there are two possible reasons. One, one is that it's just, it's just, it's always been in a way, Peter and the other disciples. He's always sort of been the right hand man. He's always been the outspoken one. He's always been kind of the leader of the, of the, of the band in a way uh, underneath Jesus. But, but there's even more than that. And I think we all understand there's a lot more to, to what's going on because Peter, because he was elevated, because he was so close, close to Jesus, he was that in, in that inner circle of, of the three that were closest to Jesus. And he, he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he was a, a, a leader among the band of 12. Well, Peter has fallen from a greater height than anybody else. So um, Peter, he lies like Humpty Dumpty on the floor of his house, just in pieces. His, he's shattered by his own denial. He, he said, I'll die with you, Jesus. I'm never going to turn my back on you. I'm never going to abandon you. And then before the night is over, he denies him three times, the third time with a curse on his lips. And he is shattered. He, 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 he unfortunately, and this, is, this happens to everybody at some time or another, he sees himself as he really is. And, and when you see yourself as you really are, that's when you become broken before God. And that's when you find his grace. But Peter is just absolutely grief stricken. And I think the message is, make sure Peter knows that Jesus is looking for him too. Make sure Peter knows that, I have, that Jesus has not given up on him. That the calling is still there. That the plan of God has not been disrupted. 
Make sure Peter knows. The other thing I want to point out is this, which, by the way, that brings a lot of comfort to me. When I have blown it and, uh, and I think, man, I've just ruined God's plan. And I think God laughs at me sometimes when I say, oh, I've ruined God's plan. He's like, really? You think, first of all, you think you're strong enough to disrupt my plan? Uh, and, and number one, number two, don't you think I knew you were going to do that before I made the plan? So maybe this is all part of what I'm going to, you don't have to worry. I'm in control. And I think that's a big part of the message there. But the other thing I want to point out is this. And the angel says to them, to them, he said, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you. And this is interesting to me, to Galilee. Galilee. Now that's a little fascinating to me because let me ask you this. From where had they come to get to Jerusalem before the crucifixion? Galilee. That's where they were before. Now Jesus says, okay, now, now that's over with. I had to go through this horrible event. Now go back to Galilee and I'll meet you there. So it's like, we leave Galilee, let's go take care of business, and then we'll, I'll meet you back up at Galilee. And, and so uh, Galilee, in, and uh, it, it is uh, a very, very peaceful, very, very beautiful area. And uh, when you see it, you know, it's just, it's just out in the country. It's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. And I think Jesus was, in a way, he was saying, okay, we need, we need to get away from Jerusalem now. We've done what, what I came, uh, I've done what I came here to do. I've carried out the plan of God. Now let's get away from Jerusalem. Let's get out of this madness. Let's get back out in the countryside and let's get together. And, and let me get you healed up and get you ready for what happens next. And that's exactly what he did in the next 50 days before the ascension, or, um, the 40 days before the ascension, excuse me, um, the, uh, he got the disciples ready for what was next. That's, that's what he did. And so, uh, you know, I remember that, as we said, these people, these disciples are in shock and in trauma. And so they're going to need this time with Jesus out away from the, from the madness of Jerusalem, away from the purview of the Pharisees and uh, in the sand, all the Sanhedrin to get away from all that, get back in the country, get up to the place where they're, they're familiar with and just be there with Jesus and rest. Then verse eight concludes, concludes this whole episode at the tomb with the women. I won't make any comment on it, but let me just read it. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now we're going to look at verses 9 through 20 before we end this study. And I, I want to just tell you a couple of things about it and then, and then we'll be finished here. But uh, liberal scholars, which as I've said in the past, um, is an oxymoron. <laughs> I'm not so sure those two words should go together. But they love to point out that verses 9 through 20 are not included in the oldest manuscripts that we have. And they love to make a really big point of this, stating that, that this would mean that they were added at a later time. And they, they like to make the claim that verses 9 through 20 were added on to the Gospel of Mark. And, and listen, I know, and I'm, I'm not one, you know, there are a lot of uh, older manuscripts that have been discovered over time, and there are places where where it doesn't change anything. But, but this particular passage right here, I want you to understand, there are two problems with that view to, that that was added later. One is that this passage of Scripture is referred to by two of the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Hippolytus. 
And they both refer to Mark 16, 9 through 20 in, in their writings. And their writings are dated earlier than the earliest manuscripts that we have. So while there are places where people may have a, a good discussion about, well, is this something that was, you know, parenthetical that was added later or not, this is not one of those places uh, because, because we have reference to this passage that actually is made before the earliest manuscript. And you say, no, okay, but how could that be? If the earliest manuscript doesn't have 9 through 20, how could they possibly make reference? How could that be? Well, let me just give you a little scenario that you can imagine. Imagine it like this. Mark writes this gospel some years later because they're distributing it all over the world. Uh, a man copies his manuscript, but through human error or neglect, this passage somehow is left out. Or perhaps he copied it all correctly and then the last page was damaged or lost somehow or another. All right. And then several, several years later, another man is copying manuscripts and, and preserving the word of God. And then he realizes from his study and from his reading that the early church fathers have referred to scripture that's not included in this manuscript that he has. So he goes and begins digging and he finds an older manuscript and he finds this passage of scripture and he restores it to the, that particular portion. And then after that, suppose the original manuscript that he used was lost in a fire. So what happens now? Now you have, I'm just saying, I'm not saying this happened. I'm just saying this is a scenario where you could see that this is a reasonable thing that could happen. So now the oldest manuscript that we have is one that has it missing. But the newer manuscript that has it may have actually been copied from an older manuscript. Does that make sense? So uh, anyway, so uh, all, I'm, all that, I say all that to say this. I believe that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is truly part of the inspired word of God. And it means less than a puff of air to me that they're not included in the earliest manuscripts. It means nothing to me because of the fact that they were referred to by other writers before the earliest manuscripts. And so I'm convinced in God's ability to preserve the word of God intact and to bring it to us exactly as he wants it. So, so all of that, uh, that stuff means nothing to me. I mean, think, a God of miracles who could make his son come in the flesh and bring him into being through the womb of a virgin and cause him to walk on water and raise the dead and, and be raised from the dead who cannot preserve his word intact? Please. Oh, please. When, when, put it this way. When those who cast aspersions on Mark 16, 9, 9 through 20 are dead and gone, Mark 16, 9 through 20 will still be written in heaven because God sustains his word. Now, having said that, what is the thrust of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20? We'll close with this. I know I keep making those promises. But uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 is the final commission of Christ to his church. So let's skip down to verse 13. Jesus has now at this point in time, he has made various appearances. They're all, they're all recorded in different orders in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And people who say, oh, she, it's a, there's different order and different events, so it must be a contradiction. No, it's different eyewitnesses telling it and recalling different details and they're maybe telling them in a different order, but it doesn't make any difference. Uh, one records one, another records another. One reporting various details here and there, and another one reporting different details. However, the truth is they all add up to various appearances 
leading back to Galilee. Then verse 13. And they went back and told the rest. Who are we talking about? Talking about the ladies going back to the disciples and tell the rest, but they did not believe them. They did not believe Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, or Salome. Not only that, we know from other, manu- other uh, uh, gospels that they, they didn't believe the, the, the two men from the road to Emmaus. They're, they're just so consumed with their grief, their doubt, their, their unbelief that they just can't get it. They can't accept it. They can't bring themselves to believe it. Then verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, which means they were eating. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he'd risen. Now, I like that word rebuked. Uh, some translations, I think King James says it upbraided. He upbraided them. <laughs> That's a great word. If you don't know what upbraided means, that means leans over and gets in your face and eats your lunch. <laughs> That's what it means. And every parent here has upbraided a child at one time or another. It's like the scolding to end all scoldings. And they're, they're, they're sitting there, they're eating while they're discussing the hypothetical, because they don't believe. So they're discussing the hypothetical issues of these reports of the resurrection. And suddenly in their discussion about the hypothetical issues of the resurrection, Jesus appears. Well, guess what? That's the end of the hypothetical discussion. Opinions are swallowed up in presence. And the reality of Christ stands there and, and he, he begins to rebuke them. He, now, he shows an infinite gentleness and mercy, tenderness and love in many, many places in Scripture. However, in this one place, we see him rebuking them, saying to them, you didn't believe I appeared to Mary Magdalene. I told her, go and tell them that I'm risen from the dead and you didn't believe her. So what did I do? I walked all the way to Emmaus with these two brothers. I sent them to tell you and you didn't believe them. I told you, I told you for three years that the Son of Man must be crucified, buried, and on the third day rise from the dead. Didn't didn't I tell you that? Did I not tell you that? Yes, Lord, you told us that. You said that. Don't please don't scold us anymore. Jesus like, I can't believe you didn't believe this. Your hardness of heart. It's hard for me to understand. Where is your faith? How can you be so engulfed and encased in your own emotions and your own grief and your own trauma that you would miss the wonderful reality of my resurrection? And I picture this in my mind. They sit there with their heads bowed and they're just shattered before him. They have nothing to say. And then Jesus says, now, I have one more thing to say to you. They say, all right, Lord, what is it? And he said to them, verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, I don't know what that means to you, but I'll tell you what it means to me. Has anybody here ever failed? I mean, failed God. I mean, failed. I mean, I mean, crashed and burned. Yeah. If you ever failed God only to hear him say, okay, 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 you failed. And you know, I, I don't, I just don't, I can't believe your hardness of heart and your unbelief, your disobedience. 
We say, Lord, is there anything else you want to say? And he says, yes, there is. Now I want you to travel the world and preach the word. It's another way. Just the same message that he had to, for Peter, isn't it? Because he said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Tell Peter, I haven't given up on him. The call is still there. And while he's there, he's, he's rebuking the disciples saying, I, I can't understand why you have a hard time believing this with everything that I've given you and everything I've shown you, everything I've told you. He said, but you know what? The call is still there. I'm not giving up on you. I still love you. I'm still going to use you. That's what I see in there. You know, it, it is recorded. And I, I assume the story is historical. Everything that uh, points to it being historical, not apocryphal. But when Thomas Edison, it's about when Thomas Edison and his team fabricated the first working light bulb. Edison uh, turned and he surveyed each member of the team as they were having some exhibition and he, he surveyed each member of his team as if he was sizing them up. And after, after surveying them, uh, all of them, Edison handed the light bulb to a young boy who was helping in the lab and trusting him with the very delicate task of carrying that first light bulb, the, the first light bulb ever produced upstairs and placing it gently on into a, vac, excuse me, a vacuum machine. Well, needless to say, this, this bulb was very precious and the boy knew it. Step by step, he, he cautiously washed his hands and he, he obviously was very frightened of dropping such a priceless piece of work. But the, but the boy was concentrating so hard on making sure that it, the bulb didn't slip from his hands that he forgot to watch his feet. And he tripped on the top step of the stairs and dropped the bulb and it shattered. Well, Edison put his team back to work. And uh, their, their effort to construct the second light bulb consumed another 24 hours. But they got it done in another 24 hours. And Edison was ready to have his light bulb carried up the stairs again. And he looked around at his team and surveyed each one of his co-workers to determine who would carry the bulb upstairs. And everybody was shocked when Edison selected the young boy who had dropped it the first time. Edison knew that the boy was probably devastated by the first incident, and he decided to give him another chance. And this time, the boy successfully completed his task. Well, let me ask you this. Could Thomas Edison be any better and any more filled with grace than our God? Well, I think not. Jesus says to these people, I know everything you've done. I, I know your weakness, your disability, your failure, your disobedience, your lack of faith. I know everything. And I have one more thing to say to you. Go in all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. And those who believe what you say will join us all in heaven at the end of, of things. And those who do not believe you, by the way, just the way you didn't believe. That's the humility of ministry. Right there. You didn't believe, but the people who don't believe you will be condemned. But then look at verse 17 again. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Who, who believe what? Those who believe the gospel that you preached. Now please, please notice uh, this because th this is, I think, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It does not say, for example, that these signs will follow those who preach. It says these signs will follow those who believe. 
That means in subsequent generations among those who believe the gospel from this place to that place, from this age to that age, from this generation to that generation, those who believe in every generation, wherever the church is, these signs shall be present. Now, now I want to close with this. I keep saying that. It's not an empty promise, but it's extremely important. It's important for us to get this. It does not mean that all of these signs shall follow every time anybody believes. In, in fact, it doesn't even mean that every generation or every group of people will see any of these signs. What it, what it means is, is that Jesus is diagnosing the character of the church. What is the one thing that is similar in all of these signs? They shall take up deadly serpents. They will drink deadly poison and not die. They shall speak in other tongues. They shall experience miracles. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. What's the one thing that's common to all of these things? It's that they're all supernatural. That's the commonality. So Jesus says, obey me in the natural realm. Go in all the world and preach the gospel and wherever the gospel is believed, there will be supernatural manifestation of the presence of the gospel. Why? Because the mechanism that believes the gospel is what? Faith. Which is supernatural. So Jesus says, go and obey me in the natural. Go into this natural world in your own natural body and do the natural act of preaching. And that will unleash the power of the supernatural. And these kinds of things will happen. I think that's what he's trying talking about. These kinds of things will happen. When, but, but when we take these signs that are listed in Mark 16, and then we try to force God to make them happen in any particular way, in any particular moment, that's when we move into error. And that's, that's how you end up with, with people who are, you know, handling rattlesnakes. You know, which you'll never see me doing that. I can tell you that right now. Because the reason people get into things like that is because they say, if God will not supply the miracle, I will force his hand. Uh, there aren't any rattlesnakes in here, so I'll just bring them in. I haven't been bitten by one in a while, so I'll just play with one. So they, so they try to force the hand of God. And, and that's what happens anytime we're, 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 we try to force God to perform for us. That's, that's presumption, not faith. That's presumption, which is pride, which is rooted in rebellion, which is antichrist. And that's a horrifying paradox, isn't it? That those who are trying to force God to perform according to the standards of Mark 16 enter into the spirit of antichrist. So, so what does he mean then? He means that if we'll just obey, he'll perform the supernatural at the right time in the right way. He's saying... Supernatural things are going to happen if you'll be obedient and preach the gospel because it's a supernatural message. It means that those kinds of miracles are going to happen, miraculous things, signs, wonders, gifts, graces, the outpouring of God's spirit. Wherever the church happens, those things are going to happen. It's, and it's going to be unfeigned. It's going to be unaffected. It's going to be real. It's going to be genuine. It's not going to be some big showy thing. It's, it's going to happen in generation after generation after generation. 
These signs shall accompany those who believe, not just in the generation of the apostles, but in every generation. You know, there are some that say, oh, all the signs ended with the apostles. But there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that those signs and wonders are to cease at any point of time until the return of Christ. And wherever anybody believes, wherever faith is operative, signs and wonders are going to happen. Now, I told you multiple times I was going to close, so here it is. A missionary went to San Jose, Costa Rica a few years ago. And he went up in the mountains in this little farm. It was uh, actually a Methodist farm. And he, he, he met a lot of wonderful Christians there, a lot of wonderful people. And there were, there were a, a pretty a large number of uh, refugees from Nicaragua who had come through the jungles to get there. And they let them li- work and, and live there on this little farm. And as he was going around talking with these different people, there was one young man that was sort of just off to the side, and he was chopping wood over there. And, and as they were walking around talking to people, everybody said, everybody said that's Carlos. Tell him about Carlos. Tell him about Carlos. And, and, you know, the missionary looked at him. He was just an ordinary-looking young man. He thought he looked to be uh, about 18 or so. And they, they, but they just kept saying, tell him about Carlos. Tell him about Carlos. Well, eventually they called Carlos over and Carlos greeted the missionary. He was a very nice, handsome, young, young man, but there honestly didn't appear to be anything extraordinary about him. And eventually they, they said to Carlos, all right, Carlos, you can go back to work. And he left. And the missionary looked at them and he said, well, what about Carlos? I didn't sense anything particularly spectacular about him. What about Carlos? And they said, well, we'll, we'll tell you what happened. They said he, he was a pastor. He's a pastor from Managua. And he escaped the firing squad in Nicaragua by minutes. And he walked through the jungles and over the mountains to get here. And they said he had been here for, for a week on this farm. And as he was clearing some brush, the most poisonous snake in Central America bit him. So we, they said we killed the snake so we know what kind of snake it was. And everybody said to him, Carlos, you're going to die. Carlos said, no, I I don't think so. He said, I I really have this sense in my spirit that God's going to heal me. And and Carlos picked up his machete and started clearing the brush. And they said, well, Carlos, at least let us pray for you. Just kneel down here and let us pray. There's no time to go get any medicine. By the time we get medicine, get back up the mountain, it'll be too late. So they said, at least let us lay hands on you and pray for you. And and Carlos said, no, let's not waste the time. (laughs) Let's not waste the time. He said, I believe God's spoken to me. He's going to heal me. And if he doesn't heal me, I'd like to get a little more of this brush cleared before I die. And. The missionary looked over at that barefoot young man in the mountains of Costa Rica and thought to himself, that's the church. You go about the work. You keep chopping away. And when something happens, if God is not ready for you to come home, he will intervene supernaturally. That's what I believe it's talking about there. That's the church. The Son of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father, working with the church as they tramp through the mountains and the ghettos, the cities, the suburbs, among the wealthy and the poor and the outcast and the up and out and the down and out. And as they proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
God will pretty much be God. God will do what only God can do. He's alive. Behold the place where they lay him. He is not there. Bow your head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you that we serve a Savior who is alive. And that, Lord God, as we walk in obedience to you, you confirm your word with the supernatural. That it's not up to us. We don't have to be anything spectacular. All we can do is be normal human beings that walk in obedience. And as we speak the truth, as we proclaim this gospel, you confirm your word with the miraculous, with the supernatural. And Lord, we, we just, I just pray, God, that uh, first of all, we, I, we are so grateful to you, Lord, for saving us. And I, I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to be aware of your presence, that, that we, would be, we would sense your nearness in a very special way and, uh, throughout the rest of this week and throughout this Christmas season, Lord God. I, I pray, God, you would confirm your word with signs following after. And God, I pray you would give these people wonderful miracles, but, but above everything else, Lord, give us the glory of your presence. Help us to walk with you and to make known to this world that there is a living Savior who can, who can save us, who can forgive our sins, who can change us, and through his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, we can be adopted into the very family of God. We give you thanks. In the strong name of, name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.